The stories we tell are central to how we perceive and understand the world. Stories are recognizable patterns, and in those patterns, we find meaning. We use stories to make sense of the world and understand uh, and share that understanding with other people. Stories shape our worldview and build our confidence in certain beliefs, that the hero is always brave, that there's like a wise older person, like a guide who helps the hero understand what they need to do, and that dark woods are always bad. (laughs) Have you picked that up from stories? One of the stories that's been mentioned already this morning that's become part of our collective consciousness is David and Goliath. You hear it mentioned all the time. I read a news article this week about politicians who are starting a new party, and they were calling themselves the David against the Goliath of the political establishment. If you're visiting today, we've been spending several weeks now in the life of David and that we find in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And today we reached the climax of the first part of that account, and we're going to be talking about David and the not-so-friendly giant Goliath. Probably of all the stories in the Bible, this is one of the most well-known. So even if you've never been to church before, you're probably familiar or in some way familiar with this story. Now, talk of giants can sound like a fairy tale, but did you know the world's tallest man that we have verified records for was Robert Wadlow? There he is, eight foot eleven. I've still got a bit of growing to do to to get there. I'm eating my greens, don't worry. Goliath is a little bit taller than that. My wife's saying that I'm not eating my greens, but I am. I am. Let's just declare it publicly. Goliath is just a little bit taller, over nine feet tall, but this helps us to see this isn't just a myth or a nice story. This is recorded as part of the history of Israel, and David is going to face Goliath in battle. Now, it's great. When you get to mornings like this morning, uh, when your preach has already been preached for you in the worship, so I was thinking I'd just sit down and have a cup of tea, but I will say what I'm going to say, but it's just, it's just fantastic. God's already been speaking to us this morning, um, and so hopefully I will unpack a bit more of that. Now, most of us don't tend to run into people over nine feet tall who are trying to kill us. But we do face giants all the time, things that make us afraid and rob us of confidence and joy, things like loneliness, anxiety, and depression are enemies most of us face at some point in our lives. And you can pick your own, struggling with self-esteem or difficulties with your children's behavior or relationship challenges. And there are other giants in the land, the giant of cancer, giants like broken relationships, the giants of homelessness and poverty that we've just heard about. And sometimes those giants wander into our lives, lives that kind of bundle along, go along happily, and then suddenly 
We're faced with an enemy like illness or bereavement, and we need to decide how we're going to respond. It's amazing how things can be almost invisible until they suddenly become a part of your life. I remember when Jess and I were, uh, first had children, and we were looking for a buggy and a car seat to buy for Noah. I suddenly noticed buggies everywhere. They'd been invisible before, but suddenly they came to my attention. I noticed the brand. I noticed the color. I noticed whether the car seat fitted on the buggy and which way it faced when you walk along. If you've never had children, these things don't make any sense to you. But suddenly I noticed them. The same is true when one of these giants wanders into your life, like serious illness or redundancy. Suddenly, it's not background noise anymore. It's up in your face, shouting threats at you. And these giants can make us feel hopeless and helpless. And this is exactly the situation that we find the people of Israel in, facing a physical giant who is taunting and intimidating them. And we're going to read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to start at verse 40. Then he, that's David, took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept moving closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? I seem to envisage Goliath as a big cockney geezer, but that's just me. Um, And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. His dog, his dog, his god was Dagon. Just remember that for later on, okay? Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Have that, Goliath. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, He struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, 
and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharaim road to Gath and Ekron. When the, Phil- when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. Such an amazing story. But let me tell you what this story isn't about. It is not the ultimate underdog story, where the little boy David triumphs over the scary giant. It's not the just believe in yourself story. Our society says, just believe in yourself. Ben, if you want to play football for England, you can do it. And despite my natural skill that many of you will have noticed, and however hard I work, that's probably not going to happen. I think I've missed my moment. It's not the ultimate strategy game. It's not a story about how David outwitted Goliath with guerrilla tactics. Not, you know, if it was top trumps, David would lose. You know, he loses in every category. It is a story about where we place our confidence. What is remarkable is how David's perspective on this battle seems to be different to absolutely everyone else's. I wonder whether when David was small, David was told a particular bedtime story from Israel's history. Let me tell you that story. There was a time, several decades before David was born, when the Ark of God was captured by the Philistines. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Ark was a box that contained the Ten Commandments that God had given to Moses. And it was the place where God's presence dwelt on the earth. The loss of the Ark was a disaster for the Israelites because they'd lost the presence of God. Do you remember what they'd said, Moses had said? If you go with us, then we'll stand out. But if we don't have your presence, then there's no point. They'd lost the ark. They'd lost the presence of God. The Philistines took the ark and placed it in the temple of their god Dagon. Remember Dagon? Next to the, uh, and they put the ark next to the statue of Dagon. And 1 Samuel 5 verse 3 says, When the people of Ashdod, that's the city where the temple was, rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon, I don't know how heavy he was, but probably a heavy statue, and put him back in his place. But verse 4, the following day, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Do you see the similarities? I envisage this gigantic statue of Dagon falling face down in the presence of God, just like Goliath fell 
face down. Was David's perspective going into battle with Goliath shaped by that story? Is that why David had a different perspective to everyone else in the Israelite army? David had embraced a truth about the power and authority of God, that no power, no God, no idol could stand before the presence and power of Israel's God. During the Iraq war, people didn't know whether Saddam Hussein had been captured, but there was that moment when the statue of him was pulled down and the world knew the truth that his regime had fallen. David seemed to have an awareness of God's power and authority, and he believed that God would deliver him. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 26, David says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Whereas Saul says in verse 33, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him, You're only a boy, and he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David isn't just remembering stories of God's power from the past. He's got his own stories. He replies in verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And after Goliath has threatened him, David responds in verses 45 and 46, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. David seems to have grasped a truth that other people couldn't see, despite the challenges that were so evidently in front of him. How did he do that? I think it's about where he placed his confidence. This is the key for us. This story is all about where we place our confidence. Goliath was confident in himself. He'd been a fighting man from his youth. He was massive. He was armored. He was probably overconfident. Whereas you look at David's older brother, Eliab, who'd kind of said, well, who are you, David? Get out of it. King Saul and the whole Israelite army, they'd lost their confidence. They'd lost heart. And frankly, they thought David was bonkers for going out and fighting Goliath. But David's confidence wasn't in Saul's armor that Saul had tried to put on him. It wasn't in his sling. It wasn't in a particular stone. Oh, well, if I pick the right stone, then I can win. His confidence was in God. Let me ask you, where is your confidence? Is it in yourself and your ability? Is it in other people? Are you trusting in someone else to make you happy or to give you success or to save your life? Or is your confidence in God? One of the times 
I most had to trust God was when Jess and I and our family moved to Bristol. We'd been living in London and we'd felt God speak to us about wanting to move us, but we didn't know where we were supposed to go. Our kids at that point were eight, five, and one, and we had great friends and loved the church where we were. Trusting God for us meant effectively uh, me handing in my resignation without knowing where we were going. God was remarkably gracious to us, as within nine months of that decision, we'd moved to Bristol, Noah and Lucy had school places, and I started working for City Church. But do you know what? Our first three years here were really tough. We felt lonely, we felt misunderstood, and there were challenges in the church. And we had a decision to make. Were we going to keep trusting God even though things were hard? Were we going to put our confidence in Him? Were we going to hold on to Him? There were so many things that we couldn't change. You can't microwave friendship. You can't just suddenly whip up, oh, here's my friends that I've been friends with for 20 years. But we could keep trusting him, that he'd brought us here and that he had a plan. David declared his confidence in God in verse 47. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. In that moment, David believed. Of the thousands of Israelites gathered for war, he was the only one who believed that because the Lord saves and because he put his confidence in God, that he would prevail. David was thinking, because the battle is the Lord's and because I am his, I can have confidence. David slings a stone, and Goliath falls, boom, just like the statue of Dagon had fallen. The same thing had happened to the Philistines' champion as had happened all those years ago to their God. Imagine that moment, stunned silence. No one saying anything, not a sound on the battlefield as Goliath lies there. People can't quite believe what they're seeing. David stands over Goliath, reaches down, draws the sword, kills him, and then cuts off his head. I know, not a very appropriate story for Mother's Day. Why do you think we're getting this detail? Don't worry, I'm not going to reenact this for you now. I haven't got a, a, you know, a chainsaw from someone that I've borrowed. Why give us that detail? Goliath was their champion, like the head of the army. And if you've ever been in an exotic place like Africa and found a snake in your house, what do you do? You kind of pin it down, and then what do you do? What do you do? Thanks, Joseph. You chop off its head, and then it is rendered powerless. 
And at the sight of the seemingly invincible Goliath, who everyone was scared of and intimidated and thought no one can beat him, when they see him on the floor with his head cut off, the Philistine army lose heart and all their confidence ebbs away and they turn and hightail it and run. There's something deeper going on here. All the way back in Genesis 3, when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve into disobeying God, God had promised that a child would be born who would crush the serpent's head. This isn't just about David defeating Goliath. This is about God showing his supremacy over the God of the Philistines. Just like he'd shown his supremacy over the gods of Egypt when Moses said, let my people go, and Pharaoh wouldn't let them go, and God sent plagues, and God showed his supremacy over the, God, the river God, and the crop God, and their livestock God, and their sun God, and every other God. David knew that his Lord, the God of the Bible, is the one true God. And all others will fall before him. David's defeat of Goliath also points forward to an even greater victory that would be won through Jesus' death on the cross. God's plan to rescue humanity. In Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul talks about how God made a way for sins to be forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus' life on the cross. Because Jesus is God's own son who lived a perfect life. His death on the cross could atone for all the things that we've done wrong that separate us from a perfect holy God. How do you take hold of that? We take hold of it by faith, by trusting and believing that Jesus did that for us. Paul writes in Colossians 2 verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that's Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In the moment of greatest defeat, when Jesus had died on the cross, when it looked like all hope was lost, Jesus was achieving the greatest victory. That's what, Jesus, that's what David did to Goliath. He disarmed him and he made a public spectacle of him by taking his head as a trophy. Decapitation is pretty final. I don't know many people that have come back from it. Jesus took the head off sin and death. He disabled the control center, the operating system of sin and death, and removed their power. They no longer have power over you. He's achieved the ultimate victory. Our great enemies are defeated, and they will not rise again. But Jesus has risen again. We're going to celebrate it on Easter Sunday, but if you're a Christian, we can celebrate that every day. If you put Jesus in charge of your life, if you make him your Lord, then things will start to change. 
you'll no longer be saying my way. I want, my, I want to do this my way. I want, I want my friendships to be that way. I want my career to be that way. You'll be saying your way, God. I trust your way. I believe you are more powerful than any giant that I face. Even if it's cancer or depression or a relationship that breaks down, I'm confident because the battle is the Lord's and I belong to him. So how do we have confidence in God when we're faced with giants in our lives? When I wake up every morning and there they are taunting me, making me feel hopeless and helpless. I think the way we have confidence is by hanging on to God, hanging on to him in prayer, keep on coming back to him and asking him, God, help me. Let me know that you're with me. We hang on to him in the choices we make. We hang on to him by staying faithful to him. When people say, give up on church, what's the point? You know, it's not perfect. It's never going to be right. When people say, it's not possible to wait to have sex until you're married. Make good choices. When you feel like, I'll never find a Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. It means putting our trust in God more than the circumstances around us. Now, trusting God doesn't mean all the giants go away in this life. We still have to believe and fight. Sometimes we overcome by God's grace. People are healed, relationships are mended, Life gets better, but sometimes the giants seem like they're winning. We lose a loved one. We face heartbreak and disappointment. Following Jesus doesn't promise that life will be all plain sailing, but we know that through his death and resurrection, Jesus has won a victory we could never win and defeated the greatest giants, our greatest enemies sin and death. And we know that whatever happens, God is with us, sometimes to give us victory and sometimes to help us endure. He's with us and gives us strength to weather the storm, to endure when the battle rages on. He comforts us by his Holy Spirit. He gives us grace. He develops patience in us and he helps us to overcome. I want to finish very quickly by giving you five things I think we can do to help ourselves and to help one another. Firstly, we need to tell stories about the goodness and faithfulness of God so that we can celebrate with one another and be encouraged when someone is healed, when someone becomes a Christian, when God comes through for someone. We need to tell the story. Secondly, we need to face our giants is there a giant in your life that you're trying to ignore, hoping that it will just go away, but it's got you paralyzed with fear? You need to go into battle. Has a, has a friendship broken down and you stop talking to someone? Break the silence. Take courage. Move across the room and go and speak to that person and make it up. Extend grace because God has extended grace to you. Third, 
we need to embrace the truth of what Jesus has done. When the enemy taunts you and tries to tell you, you might as well give up. When he says, there's no point resisting sin, you're beaten, you'll never be good enough. We need to speak truth to ourselves. I know I'll never be good enough, but there's one who's been good enough for me. We need to regularly feed ourselves on truth from the Bible. The battle is the Lord's, but that doesn't mean we become passive. We go into battle, but we fight in his strength. Fourthly, we need to trust God and put our confidence in him. Jesus is Lord over my life. He's Lord over your life. He's Lord over your situation. He's Lord over Bristol. Jesus is Lord over the United Kingdom. He's even Lord over the Brexit process. He's Lord over the nations. He's been given the name that is above every name. Imagine the difference it would make if we live with that kind of faith and confidence. Imagine the difference it would make to you, to your family, to the place where you work. And then fifth and finally, we need to enjoy grace and the difference that Jesus makes. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you're forgiven. You no longer need to feel guilty or ashamed, not because of anything you've done to earn it, but a free gift from God. You have the Holy Spirit alive in you, empowering you to live for God. And if there's one phrase I want to stick in your mind from this morning, it's this. I'm confident because the battle is the Lord's and I am his. I'm confident because the battle is the Lord's and I am his. I want to encourage you to put your confidence in God and submit to his lordship. You might be a Christian, then declare him again as your Lord. Or you may never have known what Jesus has done for you. You may be hearing it for the first time this morning. You can pray this simple prayer today. It's from Psalm 62, verse 7. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. That's a prayer, a bit like Psalm 16 and reading it every day. That's a prayer that you can pray every day this week. We're now going to share bread and juice together that represent the body and blood of Jesus given for you. This is for anyone who's put their trust in Jesus. Or you may want to put your trust in Jesus right now and take bread and juice for the first time. As we do this, it is a moment for us to declare the victory of Jesus. I'd encourage you to use this opportunity to bring to him any giants that you're facing at the moment. And as we share communion, we celebrate his presence with us. Let's pray together. Do you want to stand with me? 
Father, we want to thank you for a man like David, who alone amongst thousands put his confidence in you. And right now, Lord, we want to come to you and put our confidence in you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is facing a giant, feeling hopeless and helpless. Lord, help them right now to put their trust in you, that you, are the, you alone are the one who saves. You alone can deliver. You take down the giants of fear. You take down sin and death. And Lord, we worship you now. As we take bread and wine, we declare your victory. We declare you as Lord over every situation. We pray that in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.